0: At Romans 6, Paul says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. We who died to sin, how shall we any longer live therein? Or are ye ignorant that all we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him through baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we also might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that so we should no longer be in bondage to sin." For he that hath died is justified from sin. But if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death no more hath dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died unto sin once, but the life that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Even so, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God through Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey the lust thereof, neither present your members unto sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves unto God as alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace, What then? Shall we sin, because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not, that to whom ye present yourselves as servants unto obedience, his servants ye are whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death, or of obedience unto righteousness? But thanks be to God, that whereas ye were servants of sin, ye became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching, whereunto ye were delivered. And being made free from sin, ye became servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye presented your members as servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now present your members as servants to righteousness unto sanctification. For when ye were servants of sin, ye were free in regard of righteousness. That fruit then had ye at that time, and the things whereof ye are now ashamed, for the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin, and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto sanctification, and the end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. As you know, I'm bringing to you in these two Lord's Days a series of four messages on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, its implications for the Christian life. Last Lord's Day, we began in the morning by considering the fact of Christ's resurrection and what it requires to believe that, in fact, he rose from the dead. I said then that at the very most crucial point in our lives stands what is, in fact, the most unbelievable commitment, and that to a miracle that Christ rose from the dead at the place which is most crucial, the most unbelievable of commitment stands. And so what unique authority, I ask then, what unique authority could lead us to believe that such a thing had in fact taken place? In that dramatic parable of our saviors, the parable of uh, the rich man and Lazarus, we notice the fallacy of the natural man, the fallacy of the rich man of that parable that if one would rise from the dead, then people would believe and submit to the truth of God. But in fact, the Pharisees disproved that historically. The Pharisees, knowing of the resurrection of Christ, became all the more hardened, all the more bitter, all the more unrighteous in their response to the word of God. And so we had to conclude then, that as we examine the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that one's attitude toward the scripture, one's attitude toward the inherent authority, the self-attesting authority of the word of God determines whether he will believe Christ rose from the dead or not. As Abraham told the rich man in Hades, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. For if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe, though one rise from the dead. In the 24th chapter of Luke, we noticed as well that when Jesus met those who were slow of heart on the road to Emmaus, he rebuked them for not believing the scriptures and all the things that Moses and the prophets had taught, that it behooved the Messiah to first be humiliated to death and then be glorified in life. Yes, even on the day of Pentecost, as Peter preached, he said that death could not hold the Savior, that it was impossible for Jesus to be held in the barns of death, for the scripture had said. It's because scripture declares on the authority of God that Jesus would rise and has risen, that we do believe that fact. Abraham is the father of the faithful in that regard, for Abraham believed against hope, against all the indications of science and natural expectation. Abraham believed against hope, but according to that which had been spoken. Consequently, only submission to the authority of God speaking in the Scripture will bring us to the offense of resurrection faith. But if we have resurrection faith, that means that we must affirm that God's Word is a final, ultimate standard and authority for us. We test every thought and action by the Scriptures. We trust the Scriptures above all other authority. We find the Scriptures to be completely true in what they report we say the scriptures are inerrant we say that the scriptures have as their function the guidance of our lives the scriptures transform our living because we submit to them in their direction I concluded last week that while that's a dangerous commitment to say that the word of God is the standard of my life above all other standards that it is yet a blessed commitment for utter and abandon unreserved faith and commitment to the scripture restores the soul and makes us wise and rejoices our hearts enlightens our eyes and brings with it great reward we must if we are going to have resurrection faith be committed to the proposition that we are servants of Christ and not servants of men that is scriptural faith faith founded upon a rock and not upon the shifting sands of human opinion In the evening of last Lord's Day, I turn from the faith that we need, uh, the fact of uh, the resurrection, to the joy of the resurrection, which is new life. The unbeliever, the one who cannot submit himself wholeheartedly to the word of God, lives in a constant tension, I suggested, a tension between a disappointment with the present life and a fear of death, which lies ahead of him. And the source of that tension is a persistent correlation that is found in the thinking of God in the word of God, a correlation between sin and death. Sin must eventuate in death. Sin has its inner structure, its inner nature, its essence, death and decay, even as righteousness must lead to life, must be the very essence of life. We saw that at the very end of our scripture reading this morning, didn't we? For when ye were servants of sin, ye were free in regard of righteousness. What fruit then had ye at that time, and the things whereof ye are now ashamed? What was the fruit of your sin in that life of which you should be ashamed? Paul says, for the end of those things is death. The wages of sin is death. Death and sin, the destruction of the grave and unrighteousness are always hand in hand. That's why the unbeliever lives in that tension but the resolution of that tension can be found in the beautiful central chapters of the book of Romans where Paul teaches that we have been justified we have been declared righteous by the resurrection of Jesus Christ even as sin has as its fruit death the righteousness of Jesus Christ had its end account his life death could not hold him because of his holiness we are justified by Jesus resurrection Jesus' resurrection was his justification. It was his vindication. It was the declaration that he was, in fact, pure from sin, that he was the Son of God. And if his resurrection, that is to say, if his justification, if his vindication is, in fact, our justification, if it is our declaration of righteousness, then it can only be so because we are in union with Christ. Because we have come to him in obedient faith and have been incorporated in him so that what is true of him is true for us. That union with Jesus Christ, that coming under the headship of Jesus Christ rather than being under the headship of the old Adam, the first Adam, comes through the instrumentality of faith. a Faith which is in the one who raised Jesus from the dead, the one who calls the dead to life. And that saving faith, I concluded, could only be affected, could only be brought about through the instrumentality and the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And it's interesting how Paul says of the Spirit that it is the Spirit of life. The Spirit of Christ who raised Christ from the dead indwells our bodies and brings life to us, life from the dead. The fruit of that has got to be unremitting joy, unrestrained joy and assurance, as Romans the 5th chapter teaches us. We can indeed glory and hope, even in the midst of tribulation, if we know the joy of the resurrection. Christ has realized his resurrection life in us. And so the scripture says, My heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall dwell in safety. For thou wilt not leave my soul to Sheol, neither wilt thou suffer thy Holy One to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness, of joy. In thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's the joy of the resurrection, the joy of new life in Christ. However, this morning we need to move on beyond the fact of the resurrection and the joy of the resurrection to what finally Paul sees as the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Both the nature of scriptural faith as we expounded it last Sunday as well as the nature of the new life which we have in Jesus Christ, demand holiness of life. The fact of the resurrection and the joy of the resurrection are inseparable from the power of the resurrection, which is a sanctified manner of living. The act of God, according to the Bible, by which we are decisively removed from the unrighteous bondage of death, the depravity of sin, the, the, the act of God by which we are moved out of that realm into the realm of life is nothing less than a resurrection. Notice how Paul speaks in Ephesians, the second chapter, where he teaches, You did he make alive when ye were dead through your trespasses and sins. Even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace have ye been saved and raised us up with him and made us to sit with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You notice how Paul speaks of the deadness of our spiritual depravity, that sin has brought us to the point of death internally. And so enlivening resurrection must include a change of that deadness of sin to a living in righteousness. If we've been resurrected from the dead because we are in Christ, that means we've got to have been changed decisively from that old nature of sinful death into a new nature of righteous living. Verse 10 tells us, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God afore prepared that we should walk in them. The walk of the Christian, you see, is altered decisively by the resurrection. If we are in Christ, we no longer walk in trespassing sin, but we walk in good works. We walk in those good works that God has prepared beforehand. In Colossians the second chapter, Paul teaches a similar doctrine in referring to our moral renovation as a resurrection. In Colossians two verse eleven, he teaches, "In whom ye were also circumcised." with a circumcision not made with hands, in the putting off of the body of the flesh, and putting off of that body of the sinful nature, in the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, wherein you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. We have been raised with Christ. And that means for Paul that we've been raised out of the depravity of sin into newness of righteous life. If ye were raised together with Christ, seek the things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. If you are raised with Christ, that will be shown in the fact that the pollution of sin is being put off and you are walking as a new man. And so scripture speaks of our moral renovation, of our change of life as a resurrection. In Romans the sixth chapter, which is our text for this morning, we find that that is indeed the prevalent theme of Paul when it comes to sanctification. The most decisive fact of the Christian life when it comes to our sanctification is that we have been raised with Christ. Justification, the joy of the resurrection and new life, must bring sanctification holiness of life for they both spring from the efficacy of the death of Christ and his resurrection let's work through Romans 6 then seeing how Paul lays this out before us and then what Paul makes of the fact that we are resurrected with Christ he begins with the uh, dominant question the question that will govern all of this thought in chapter 6 what shall we say then shall we continue in sin that grace may abound. He has already made the point, you see, that where sin abounded, grace superabounded. You see, God was all the more glorified that he saved not righteous men, but sinful men. And so sin brought, even sin brought glory to God. And so, as it has always been, it was in Paul's day, it is even now. So many people are wont to say that a religion of grace gives rise to loose living. A religion of grace is an easy religion. an easy easy religion that makes men morally lax. And if, in fact, God's glory abounds through our sin, then shouldn't we reason that we should sin all the more to bring more glory to God? That's the controlling question. Does grace encourage a life of sin? I'm awfully glad this morning that we're going to answer that question from the Scriptures. Because if we were to attempt to answer that question from our lives, I dare say we would not arrive at the same conclusion that Paul does. Does grace encourage a life of sin? Well, some might be inclined to say, well, look at the life of those who claim the grace of God. Has it encouraged a life of sin there? We will have to conclude after we see the way Paul talks that some who claim to be living a life of grace must examine themselves and to ask themselves whether in fact they are not hypocritically claiming to be united to the Savior. Notice how Paul says, God forbid, he uses such terminology when he comes to a point, he says, argument is almost insufficient. We must decry such a suggestion that grace could lead to a life of sin. And he goes into the argument, having made that exclamation, for notice, we who died to sin, how shall we any longer live therein? The premise of his argument is stated very negatively here. He says, now look, the believer is to be identified as one who died to sin. That's what it means to be a believer. I am dead to sin. And if one is dead to sin in his individual experience, he no longer lives in the realm of sin. In the most decisive of of phraseology, Paul says, we who were dead in sin are now dead to sin. That deadness in sin is the most graphic explanation of how we are under the bondage and the control of unrighteousness. But being dead to sin is correspondingly the most graphic way to portray the fact that sin doesn't hold us. Sin can't touch us. We were dead in sin, Paul says, but believers are identified as those who are dead to sin. And then he validates his premise. The premise of the argument in verse 2 is that we have died to sin. Verse 3 says, are you so ignorant? All we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Whenever Paul says, are you so ignorant? Paul is not simply humiliating his readers. Paul is saying these are central truths. These are obvious truths. These are the ABCs of the Christian faith. Could you possibly have missed the fact that when you were baptized, you were baptized into the death of Jesus Christ? You see, Paul wants to validate his claim in verse 2 by appealing to the implications and the importance of baptism. What does it mean that we've been baptized? And I suggest Paul gives us the answer when he says we've been baptized into Christ. We have been baptized into Christ, which is to say we are in union with Christ. There is a solidarity between us and Christ. We are planted in the Savior. We are seen as together in the sight of God. And because we are in union with Christ, because we are one body with Christ through baptism, We participate in all the blessings and all the privileges of his death. And so notice how he is going to reiterate that throughout this chapter. He's going to stress it over and over again. We died with Christ. We are united with Christ in his death. Notice verse 3. Are you ignorant that we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him through baptism into death. Verse five. For if we've become united with him in the likeness of his death. Verse eight. But if we died with Christ. Now, those, that's not a lot of verses right there. You see, but Paul has that constant refrain: "You are dead with Christ. You died with Christ." Would you get it into your head what that means? You're dead with Christ. Even as he will teach in Galatians the second chapter. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. And the significance of that living, even though he has been crucified with the Savior and is dead with Christ, in union with Christ, through baptism unto his death, the significance is going to be laid out gloriously here in chapter 6 of Romans. In Colossians we saw already that if our uh, spiritual conversion is viewed as a resurrection, that means we must seek the things which are above, We must live lives of holiness. And so also, here Paul is arguing, you are dead with Christ. And in verse 10, he supplies the next premise of his argument. For the death that he died, he died unto sin once for all. You are dead with Christ. He died unto sin, and therefore you died unto sin. You cannot be in the Savior. You cannot know the grace of God unless you have died to sin, even as he died to sin. And verse 4 confirms that way of argument. Paul says, We were buried therefore with him through baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so also we might walk in newness of life. That's the positive way of expressing what he said already. He says, look, you are dead to sin because you are dead in Christ than to sin. But you're also alive positively. You're alive in his resurrection being alive unto righteous behavior. We're completely identified with Christ since we are buried with him, planted with him. But the purpose of our being united with him is resurrection life. That the power of his resurrection might reign in us unto newness of life. In fact, might reign in us through a newness which consists in life. Because in terms of the scriptural correlation between life and righteousness, one cannot be alive unless he's alive unto righteousness. Verse 10 teaches us that Christ lives unto God from the dead. And so verse 11 says, Even so reckon ye also yourselves to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God. Throughout, Paul wants you to see there's a parallel between the experience of Christ and your own personal spiritual experience. That if Christ was dead unto sin and then alive unto God, so you who are planted with Him, you who know Him in faith, you who are joined to the Savior must also be dead unto sin, but alive unto God. Verse 5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. There's the confirmation. We walk in new life because we are identified with Christ in his resurrection. If we have been dead with him, we must be alive with him. The death and the resurrection of Christ are inseparable. And so the death of the, of the Christian unto sin and his living unto righteousness His resurrection is also inseparable. Verse 6 puts it most graphically when it says, Knowing this, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with. A number of people have toned down so terribly the teaching of Paul at verse 6 by teaching the church
1: that the old
0: man Uh, that Paul is speaking of. The old man dies progressively. You see, the thinking of these people is the old man and the new man live together simultaneously in the Christian. His old nature, his old sinful depravity, along with his regenerate, his resurrected nature, his holy nature, live side by side. And it's a constant struggle between old man and new man until finally, at the point of death and our glorification, the old man is finally put off and then the new man Reigns. But that is so contrary to what Paul is saying right here. For he says that the old man has been done away with, that the body of sin has been destroyed. And remember what I said a moment ago. He is drawing a parallel between the experience of Christ and the experience of the Christian. Our old man being crucified can no more be a progressive, ongoing experience then the living Savior can at this moment be progressively crucified. If Christ has once and for all risen from the dead, you too once and for all decisively have risen from the dead. Your old nature is destroyed. The old man is crucified, and the new man lives within you. It's definitive. The old man is dead, even as Christ was once dead, but now lives unto God. So the disjunction between death and life, which is so clear in the experience of Christ, is precisely the disjunction Paul wants us to feel in our lives, that we are dead to sin, but alive to righteousness. And so that's how Paul answers the question that he poses in verse 1. Does grace lead to a life of sin? God forbid. For don't you see, we cannot experience the grace of God unless it is mediated through our union with the Savior. If one is not united to Christ, he doesn't know the grace of Christ. But if he is united to Christ, he's united in the death of Christ and in the resurrection of Christ. And therefore, grace has to lead to a life of righteousness. It's just the opposite of what the questioner had suggested. If we partake of the grace of God, it is in virtue of our union with his Son. And if we are united with his Son, we are united in his death. A death to sin, but a resurrection to life and a living to righteousness. Grace can't encourage a life of sin. Grace demands holiness of life, just the opposite of sin. And that's why, my brothers and sisters, that's why we must take such a decided position over against and contrary to any conception of the Christian life that sees it as two steps first of all a believing in Jesus Christ and then secondly a submitting to him first of all holding to Christ as savior and then coming to know him as lord you must take such a decided position over against and contrary to any conception of the Christian life that sees it as two steps First of all, a believing in Jesus Christ, and then secondly, a submitting to Him. First of all, holding to Christ as Savior, and then coming to know Him as Lord. First of all, being a believer in Jesus Christ, and then secondly, becoming a committed believer in Jesus Christ. First of all, knowing Jesus Christ, the Son, and salvation, and secondly, knowing the Spirit in our sanctification. There is no conception of the Christian life that is two-stepped. You, if you know the grace of God at all, know the grace of God in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is decisive. You cannot live apart from righteousness of life. It's not belief and then obedience. It's a whole new resurrected life that includes belief and obedience. Well, Paul says in verse 8, But if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Death with Him has the corresponding promise of life with Him. There's an invariable connection between resurrection and life. And the emphasis in Paul now is upon the living with the Savior. That's a certitude of faith. We believe. We believe wholeheartedly that we shall live with him. We shall certainly participate in the resurrection life of the Savior. I said at the beginning of this morning's message that we need to answer this question from the sure word of God and not from an examination of the life of believers. Does grace encourage a life of sin? Well, let's confess that in fact, Grace has been an occasion for sin for all of us. We have been lax. And we haven't shown the power of the resurrection. The joy, of course. Yes, we are believers. And we trust that we'll only be saved through Jesus Christ and his merit. The fact of the resurrection, of course, we submit to the scriptures. But do we submit to the scriptures if we don't live holy lives? And in fact, Do we know the joy of the resurrection if we don't know its power as well? In verse 11, Paul applies his message about the power of the resurrection in this way. He says, even so then, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God in Christ Jesus. And I want to concentrate upon that reckon then. He says, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. Think about that. Think about the fact that you are alive into righteousness, that you are joined to the Savior in virtue of his powerful resurrection. Paul gives that as a commandment, that we reckon with such facts, that we meditate upon such facts, that we, if you will, appreciate what it means to be in union with the resurrected Lord. This last year, I had an interesting testimony from one of my students who was reading. Uh, one of the texts in our ethics class that uh, emphasizes the fact that we are in Christ, resurrected from a life of sin and death. We are in Christ, living unto righteousness. The student confessed that he had been having trouble for months with lust, and that as much as he hated his lust, it seemed that he couldn't get on top of it, that it brought him down until he began to think upon the fact that he was a new man, that he was raised with Christ and death had no hold on him and sin had no hold on him and in the power of the Spirit even his lust could be crucified. That's why Paul says reckon with it because you must conceive of yourself as in the Savior. Proverbs says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And one of the most well-known philosophers of the 20th century, by no means a Christian, Ludwig Wittgenstein grasped the truth of that for he said the reason he could not be a Christian is that he had not the moral ability to live with the vision of the final judgment in the forefront of his mind he said you see to be a Christian means you have a conception of life which reigns over your thinking and controls your behavior and I cannot have the final judgment as a picture in my mind that controls my thinking See, through the back door, Wittgenstein had to grasp what Paul is saying. Christians reckon with certain facts, and it's not the final judgment that we must reckon with here. He had the wrong vision. Paul says, reckon with this fact. You are raised with Christ. Dead to sin, but alive in the Savior. If you'll but categorize your life and see your life and put your life in terms of that vision, that will give you strength to overcome sin. Verse 13, he goes on, neither present your members unto sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves unto God as alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Present yourselves unto God. Present yourselves as alive unto God. If you conceive of yourself as alive, as filled with resurrection power, as filled with the spirit of life, then so present yourself to God. The body has been raised precisely for righteousness' sake. And so place yourself at God's disposal so that He might direct your life into paths of righteousness. In verse 13, what Paul is calling you to do then is to once and for all dedicate yourself to God's service and to the promotion of individual holiness. Present yourselves sacrifice yourself, as he will say in Romans the 12th chapter, be not transformed according to this world, but we are to offer ourselves up as is our reasonable service to God wholeheartedly. Reckon yourselves as dead to sin, but resurrected unto righteousness. Place yourself in the hands of God that he might dispose of your life in the paths of righteousness. And verse 12 applies it totally when it says, don't let sin therefore Reign in your mortal bodies. For sin cannot have dominion over you. Don't let sin reign over you. We were once helplessly enslaved in the service of sin. And those of you who have come to know Christ later in life will confess that. But you know the impotence of your attempts at moral renovation. The impotence of your attempts to live lives that are pure and honest and good. We were enslaved to sin. As Paul says, we were dead in sin, but now we've been emancipated, so don't let sin reign over you. Think for a moment this morning of yourself as imprisoned somewhere, in chains, imprisoned in a strong fortress and held back, a strong fortress that has many guards, and there you are with strong chains and a strong fortress with many guards guarding it. Now if your friend, a friend that you cherished above all other friends, were to make a most valiant effort in your behalf, a valiant effort to try to overcome the guards and to deliver you from your chains, if he made that attempt but was killed in the fighting, if he fell fighting for your freedom, went to his death nonetheless, I dare say you would love him and you'd love him for the rest of your life. You would always remember his devoted attempts to get through to you and free you. You would remember that he gave his life for you. But you would still remain in the bondage of chains and you would still be undelivered, wouldn't you? Unfortunately, that's the analogy of the Christian life that is heard too often in our Christian churches. Remember, Jesus died for you, but you're still undelivered. So it would be for us if, as believers, Christ had not risen from the dead. We would love him for giving his life in our sinful behalf, but we would still be undelivered. We would still be under the reign of sin. We would still be in bondage unto death. And so praise be to God. That's the message Paul wants you to get. The power of the resurrection is that the Savior conquered death and destroyed the bondage of sin so that those who are united with Him through faith, those who know the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives have utterly and decisively been emancipated. Don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Sin doesn't have the upper hand for you. Jesus Christ does. The Holy Spirit does. And that's where that correlation between sin and death and living in righteousness is so important. You see, death was inappropriate for Jesus Christ because he was so righteous. Correspondingly, he had to rise from the dead. The only answer of the Father to the crucified Son was one of life and resurrection. Death couldn't hold him. And likewise, sin cannot now rule in our lives. Because we are alive in Christ. If we are in union with Jesus Christ, if we have the power of the resurrection in us, then sin is inappropriate. Sin cannot reign. Christ's efforts on our behalf go beyond dying in our place because He actually accomplished our being set free. Set free from the servitude of sin. We must always reckon ourselves a delivered people. We must always present ourselves to God as redeemed through the resurrection and therefore at liberty to live in righteousness because the forces of iniquity have not indeed any power over us. They have been slain. The old man is crucified and we now live before God. So if I wanted to summarize it for you this morning, I think it could be put very well by simply saying that Christ did not simply rise for us. That is inadequate. That doesn't get to the beauty of the book of Romans. Christ didn't simply rise for us and in our behalf, but we rose with Christ. We are so seen by followers in union with the Savior that we are resurrected because he is resurrected. We are in union with Christ in virtue of his death and in the power of his resurrection. And that dynamic fact puts pointed emphasis upon the need for a radical break with sin and its power and its defilement. Our abiding relationship to Christ's resurrection constitutes the power in virtue of which we can now live obedient lives It is, in fact, the constant force of our sanctification. As our confession puts it so beautifully in chapter 13, they who are effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them, are further sanctified really and personally through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection by his word and spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified and they are more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of true holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. You see, it's in virtue, it's through the virtue of Christ, death and resurrection that we are sanctified. The resurrection life of our Savior is an abiding fact, and it's that fact in which we share. We share the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of life, because it indwells us. And because of this, we are unqualifiedly to separate ourselves from sin, to break with unholy living. We are dead to sin. The old man is crucified. The body of sin is destroyed. It has no dominion over us. Rather, the power of the resurrection dwells in us and reigns unto life before God so that we are ethically renewed. Well, I have three things I want you to do if you believe this. There are three things which you must do if it's part, in fact, of the power of your life. Since Christ's death and resurrection has secured the destruction of sin, Would you please acknowledge once and for all here that it is vain for you to hope that God will pardon you for your sin unless you are laboring for a full attainment of holiness in your behavior. Would you admit here before the very truth of the scriptures that if you are not striving for holiness, you have no hope of pardon before God, that God will not pardon those who in fact are not being sanctified. You think of the little uh, the ermine you know, with its, with its white fur. Uh, very often in the history of the church, the white fur of the ermine has been used to line the robes of uh, bishops, allegedly to symbolize the purity of their lives. Well, that ermine is very much devoted to the whiteness and the purity of its fur, so much so that as I'm not much of a hunter, but I understand those who do hunt for ermine say that if you will find where the ermine live and will pollute that place, if you will make it dirty, then all you have to do is go out now looking for them. Because when they run back to their home, when they try to find safety, if it is a polluted place, they will not get their white fur dirty and they won't go in. You see, the ermine prefer, prefers purity to life. And that, you see, in a natural way is an analogy to the Christian who prefers that he be pure before God more than he prefers his own life of luxury. It is vain to think that if you aren't striving for utter holiness of life that God is going to pardon you. The resurrection is the resurrection to life. Secondly, if you take these words to heart, see that it is a contradiction. as a contradiction for one who is living in sin to claim to be a Christian. And I want you to notice that I'm not saying one who does acts of sin, but one who lives in the realm of sin. One who persistently and indifferently and consistently lives in his sin cannot claim to be a Christian. John puts it this way. He that says, I know him and keeps not his commandments is a little bit deluded and perhaps had better rethink that proposition. Uh, You know that John doesn't say that. John says something which is offensive to 20th century morality. It's offensive to those who hold to the idea of a gentleman and a Christian. John says, any man who says that he knows the Savior, and he doesn't keep the commandments of God, that man is a liar. You see, he consciously deceives himself and others. He's a hypocrite and the truth is not in him. And so take to heart the power of the resurrection. That it is such that if you don't know its power but you claim its power, you are a liar. And so think of the Lord's table. As you come to the Lord's table and you are asked to confess your sins before God, does it ever trouble you how the same sins occur to you to confess? the besetting sins that are always coming to us as Christians to need confession. If we live with besetting sin, we need the power of the resurrection. Compare your life to what Paul says in Colossians, the third chapter. Put to death, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, evil desire, covetousness, for which sake come the wrath of God upon the sons of disobedience. Wherein ye also once walked when ye lived in these things, but now do ye also put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, railing, shameful speaking out of your mouth, lie not to one another, seeing that you've put off the old man with his doings, and have put on the new man, that is renewed unto knowledge after the image of him that created him. Put on, therefore, as God's elect, holy and beloved, a heart of compassion and kindness, lowliness of mind and meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving each other, if any man have a complaint, even as the Lord forgave you, do also. And above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to the which also ye were called in one body and be ye thankful Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts. And whatsoever ye do, in word or in deed, do in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father. Does that describe the life that you know? Put yourself before a mirror and ask yourself whether that is the way God describes you. Are there besetting sins if there are reckon that you are dead to them and alive in Christ? If there are, present your bodies alive and liberated before God for righteousness. If there is that indwelling sin in your life, a spirit of indifference to your moral pollution, a spirit of disobedience, even delighting in the fact that you break the law of God, if you are secretly embracing that old man and so hoping that he would only live but a moment more, then ask yourself, can you be telling the truth when you say you are a Christian? Paul says you are a liar because the grace of God has been turned into lasciviousness in your life. There's only one answer for those of us who, like myself, can't answer these questions in a way which a Christian could and should. The only answer is what Paul has said before us, is the grace of God. Paul says the only way to break the power of sin is to die to it. And the only way to die to sin is to nourish communion with the Savior. You must be in solidarity with Christ. You must be in union with him. That is the only effectual way, the only method of gaining victory over our sins is if we reckon ourselves as joined to the Savior, alive in Him, and if we nourish that union through prayer. It's no accident that those who leave off a life of prayer are spiritually weak. We can only nourish our union with Christ when we are feeding On the Scriptures and taking advantage of the opportunity to hear the Scriptures when they are presented. If we are heeding the preaching of the Word, if we are listening when it's preached, and when we go home we think upon it and meditate on it, if we're seeking the fellowship of other Christians and their support and edification, if we are confessing and detesting our sins, whatever they may be, if we are aiming to imitate Christ and to enlist the power of His Spirit unto obedience. Only if we are feeding on our communion with the Savior will we have victory over our sins. You say you know the fact of the resurrection and you know the joy of the resurrection. We'll put it to the test. Know you the power of the resurrection is that scriptural faith in that new life issuing in holy living. Uh, Let's ask God this day that we would be able to say with Paul, What things were gained to me, these things I counted loss for Christ. Yea, verily, and I count all things to be loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things and do count them refuse that I may gain Christ, and be found in him not having a righteousness of mine own, even that which is of the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming conformed unto his death, if by any means I may attain unto the resurrection from the dead not that I have already obtained or am already made perfect, but I press on, if so be, that I may lay hold on that for which also I was laid hold on by Christ Jesus. Brothers, I count not myself yet to have laid hold. For one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind and stretching forward to the things that are before, I press on toward the goal, unto the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus and the power of the resurrection, so let us press on. Father, we ask today that you would indeed forgive us and pardon our sins and that you would do so by joining us to your Son that his saving benefits would flow to us, that his righteousness would be accounted to us and in so joining us to our Savior through this faith, May the power of his resurrection life flow in us and may the Holy Spirit of life so move us and impel us to hate our sins that we will press on to the prize of the high calling, that we would mortify the sinful flesh, that we would see our old man crucified entirely, and that we would live before you as free men where sin does not reign as men who know Christ and his resurrection. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.